0: Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into this week's show, I just wanted to say a quick word about Spike supporters. Spike supporters is our way of giving back to those of you who support our work. Spike has no paywall and no subscriptions. We rely on the generosity of listeners and readers like yourself to keep us going and growing. So sign up to become a Spike supporter today and you'll not only help Spike to reach more people, you'll also get some exciting perks in return, including discounts on events and on everything in our shop and much, much more. To find out more about becoming a Spike supporter, just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters.
1: Well, I do think that the government's majority is precarious, but I think British politics is in a state of flux now. And if I, if I were entering it and I was cynical and I had no ideology or principles, I would join Labour, not the Conservatives, because there is a broken, empty husk of a party that you could do anything with. And if, if your message is sufficiently radical, anti-Westminster, clever enough, I think you could take this country in any direction you wanted to go.
0: Hello and welcome to the Brendan O'Neill show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Tim Stanley. Tim is a historian and commentator. He has been at the Daily Telegraph since 2011 and is now a columnist and leader writer there. He's a regular panelist on Radio 4's The Moral Maze. He's written three books about American history, including Citizen Hollywood, How the Collaboration Between LA and DC Revolutionised American Politics. His latest book is Whatever Happened to Tradition, History, Belonging and the Future of the West. So Tim, let's talk about your book, Whatever Happened to Tradition. And I want to kick off by asking you, I guess, the most important question, which is how you define tradition. So uh, at the start of your book, and actually throughout your book, you talk about how the contemporary understanding of tradition is often a bit skewed, a bit wrong. Tradition is sometimes seen as the kind of shackles of history breathing down our necks, forcing us or cajoling us to think in a particular way or to behave in a particular way. But you argue that actually tradition is a it is a living, breathing thing. It can guide us through the present and it can offer a roadmap to the future. So that sounds that, that's a very dynamic understanding of tradition. So could you just outline for our listeners how you see tradition and why you think some of the contemporary understanding of it is problematic?
1: When we say that something is a tradition, we are saying that something is being passed on. So that in itself is dynamic. We're not just using the word to simply flatly describe something as in, as in its state. We're also describing a process. Now, traditions tend to have durability and depth, and I argue in the book uh, that there are three indicators that you're dealing with a tradition. One is that they plug an individual into a community. Another is that they give us social knowledge that tells us how to behave with each other and how to speak to each other and thirdly uh, and most excitingly uh, tradition creates a bridge to the past so that the individual doesn't just live in the present but is conscious of the past and because they're involved in this process of handling a tradition on they're also thinking about the future it is that idea of a social contract between the dead the living and the people yet to come and that is the complete opposite of dead or reactionary it is dynamic and there's also an element of progress in it as well, because you are seeking
0: to pass on and to build something. That's a very useful starting point for this discussion. And I particularly want to dig down into this idea of, of tradition being a means of connecting people with history and with their own past which is something i think is being absolutely ripped apart at the moment in a very problematic way but before we get onto that i just want to just on this question of how we understand tradition i wanted to ask you if you accept that while there is this dynamic appreciation of tradition and the role it plays in our lives as you've outlined and as you outline very well in your book at the same time, there is also such a thing as the dead hand of tradition, where th- where traditions are followed because they are traditions, because they are seen as having been established for a long period of time. So is there a, is there a conflictual uh, situation with tradition, where on the one hand it can play the role you've just outlined and which we will dig down into further, but on the other hand it can sometimes become an oppressive force and one that is we are unwilling to question precisely because of its historical uh, existence. I agree with that. Uh, and and that, is, that is a tension within the
1: book itself. Mm. Uh, for a tradition to work, it needs to defer to authority, because you've got to trust in the authority of the person passing something down. So that can breed a slavish mentality. Uh, for tradition to have integrity, it has to have boundaries of belonging. It has to say, this is how we do things. And if you try and do something differently, you're weakening the tradition. That can make tradition exclusive. Uh, And tradition can also be a tremendous breaker from progress. I'm not disputing any of that. What I would say, though, is that tradition has a Darwinian quality. The ones that survive tend to be those which are fantastically good at adaptation to meet changing human needs. And I'd also say that traditions... Can have the idea of progress and change built within them. Democracy is a tradition. So that is a tradition that by its its very definition is open to change, which is odd because you think a tradition is being fixed. Tradition usually uh, adheres to certain core timeless principles. But most traditions, the the
0: the older they are,
1: the the more different they look to what they were at their origin.
0: Yeah. Well, let's look at this question of how the individual relates to his or her history and the history of his, his or her community or nation or, or society. This is something I've been thinking about a lot over the past few years in particular. And your book actually really helped me to understand this in a much more, uh, a much clearer way. I do think there is a profound problem at the moment of people being torn away from their history and actively encouraged to see their history as a toxic thing, a problematic thing, a litany of crimes, one awful thing after another that we should primarily feel shame towards. You can see this in schools, the way in which there is this emphasis on teaching the awful parts of British history rather than the inspiring parts. Of course, in cultural institutions, the removal of certain busts, the renaming of certain buildings, a kind of shame-faced approach to British history, which I think has. A pretty dire impact on how the individual, especially younger individuals conceive of themselves and their place in society. And there's uh, interesting stuff that you've written about in relation to nostalgia. And we tend to see nostalgia as a bad thing. I've tended to see nostalgia as a bad thing because I think if people are wallowing in a, a kind of golden age view of the past, it probably speaks to a lack in the present. But you argue that nostalgia is a way of nourishing the human need for roots and belonging and for that sense of connection to where your nation or your society actually comes from, what its origins are. So could you just speak a little bit about how how much of a problem you think this tearing apart of the individual from history is – And how do you think that's likely to play out in the next few years? First of all, on this
1: strange war on our our own history that we're going through, I think of it this way. Imagine if you went to a therapist and the therapist said to you, your past is a litany of evil Mm. and you have done some terrible things. And then the therapist said, not, I want you to move on, I want you to talk about those things every day, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> we are asking of the nation something that if we asked it of an individual, it would be considered abusive. Yeah. Now, the reason why that's wrong is both because I think it is, it, it, it is burying the nation in a collective trauma, some of which, you know, this might sound contrary to my notion of our relationship to the past, but some of which does actually have nothing to do with us individually. But not not only is that burdening people, but I, I think you're also uh, cutting off history as a place of moral learning, mm. where you could draw good lessons as well, where you could usefully study uh, how people have done bad things and amended it, fixed it, overcome it, revolted against it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is where I think nostalgia comes in. We think of nostalgia as uh, a rosy view of the entire past. If that were true, again, to return to the therapist's chair, that would be perverse. If British people were nostalgic for the empire, and for slavery and for the plantation and coal mines, that would be downright odd. But they're not. They are nostalgic for an edited view of history, which has a moral dimension, one which has utility for today. So in particular, people are nostalgic for the war. Again, not for bombing raids, not for concentration camps. That would all be very unhealthy. They are nostalgic for a collective memory of when we came together to beat fascism. So the, the answer to pull all those things together is, I'm very concerned that this country is losing some historical moral memory in its crusade to eradicate its past and move on. And I, it's a trite phrase, but cliches are cliches because they're true. We are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We we must interrogate history. I want to know as much about history as possible. So, if, for instance, a country house is associated with slavery, tell us about that, because if, if nothing else, it adds to the sum total of human knowledge. But if you if you just if you just apply this blanket trauma to the past, there's a risk that you will lose that part of it which is actually useful in the present, which is a mix, as I say, of moral learning and also comfort. You know, the BBC is supposedly uh, anti-nostalgia and anti-the past. Nothing could be further from the truth. If I turn on the telly, it's all, uh, it's all midwives in the 1950s, yes. or Channel 5 is All Creatures Great and Small, or ITV is down to Nabby. Why do we keep coming back to these things? It's, it's the warm, comforting memory of the past, but if you watch those things, you find they're also full of moral learning about mm. overcoming racism and sexism, et etc. et cetera. So I think it's a mistake. To jettison your entire past.
0: So where do you think this war on history comes from and who is pursuing it? Because I, I, one of the things that strikes me is that it looks very much like a top-down endeavour. So very often it will be cultural institutions themselves which will say, well, our founder was a problematic person and we've got to hide away this artefact and we've got to stop doing these kinds of exhibitions. So it can... It, It's often presented as the kind of, you know, pinkos storming through the institutions or Black Lives Matter demanding these kinds of changes. Or uh, it's, it's, it's presented as a kind of a grassroots demand for a clearer, more accurate understanding of British history. But actually, it often looks like institutions themselves, the elite itself, I guess, having lost faith in the history of this country and their role in it and therefore feeling the need to self-flagellate, to hide things away, to express this kind of shame-faced approach. Is that how you see the war on history taking place? That it is a pursuit of the elites themselves, and then people get dragged along with it, particularly through the education system, particularly through universities, and also through uh, elements of popular culture, which push this message that British history is a, is a pretty toxic past.
1: I think it's a dynamic. It, it's a combination of the, of the activists sometimes setting the agenda, the elites then either caving in because they, they don't know how to respond, they want to see, seem to do the right thing, or they agree with them. Sometimes it does come from within the institution itself. Um, in the book, I borrow a horror movie cliche when I say that so often the call is coming from inside the yeah, house. Yeah. <laughs> it is actually the institution itself which is seeking to not just reform itself, but almost to shut itself down. There's a, there's a loss of, of nerve within those institutions. Look, I, I think there is um, there is a bogeyman right-wing view of culture war, which is that there's this tiny Bolshevik party mm-hmm. of Black Lives Matter, green people, and trans activists uh, who are, are driving the agenda and taking everything over. They're, they're colonizing the institutions and all that sort of thing. It's It's way more complicated than that. It is part of a long-term uh, loss of nerve of the elite. It is part of an even longer uh, facet of Western identity that we're very critical of our past and we're constantly interrogating it. And I think we need to talk about capitalism and consumerism and the transformation of this, uh, of what we call woke, into a consumer product in the way that green has become a consumer product. Um, that there is a market logic to some of what goes on at universities or within institutions. They are chasing where they feel the market is going. And where they're chasing what they think will drive their customer base. So it's it's not just activists driving it. It's, a, it's, a,
0: it's a, a coalition of forces. I really agree with that. And I think very often the right-wing critique of wokeness, precisely through being so narrow and focusing on the allegedly tyrannical role played by small groups of activists, it misses the broader historical picture, which is one in which there has been this long-coming loss of nerve amongst the Western elites, and including the British elite, and a kind of turn away from their traditions, a turn away from the gains of history and this kind of embrace of a self-loathing culture. And that's gone hand
1: in glove with how uh, capitalism works. Capitalism partly drives that process because capitalism needs novelty and it needs to be creating a, uh, lots of goods and encouraging people to think they need to buy them to move on to the next thing. Uh, One thing that really frustrates me about conservatives is they they think universities have just been ruined by being colonized by, as I say, a sort of Bolshevik vanguard party of academics. If you speak to academics, and I've got loads of academic friends, they will tell you that this institution has been ruined by being marketized, by being turned into a consumer product. The student uh, is there to buy a product they possibly don't need, they're paying over the odds for, and they are moving in a culture which is woke and they have demands and they expect to see them met. And lecturers hate this as much as Tory MPs do. They
0: don't realise how much they've got in common. So let's talk about capitalism and consumerism, two very large topics that we will not do justice to, but we will try our best. One of the criticisms that's made of the Conservative Party by sections of the radical left are, is that they are free market fundamentalists. Now, I don't think that is true anymore, but it may well have been true in the past, particularly in the 1980s, particularly during the Thatcherite era. And uh, one of the things that you've written about and you write about in the book is the tension between the Thatcherite pursuit of profit, the profit motive the free market ideal, the tension between that and uh, traditional conservatism and conservatism as an idea, as a political idea, which is about conserving traditions and uh, giving people a sense of, of belonging in society, whereas Thatcherism tended to be a far more radical dislocation of some of those things to the aim of reforming society in a particular direction. So just explain a little bit about how you understand Thatcherism and the role that it played in potentially warping what the Conservative Party traditionally stood for and how you think that's panning out in the current era.
1: Maggie was not an anarcho-capitalist libertarian. Yeah. She was the <laughs> last she was the last gasp of a 19th century Western conservative compact, which said that you can combine being radical in economics, individualist in economics, but also socially conservative. And in fact, through her Methodist heritage, she truly believed that if you gave people free choice, they would choose to do the right thing and they would choose to live like a Methodist. And she also believed that what she was doing through her economic reforms was nothing revolutionary so much as she was turning the clock back on the real revolution, which was the imposition of socialism in the 1940s. So in her head, she was a conservative. And it's been misremembered that her government was perceived uh, by the people in it as some sort of anarcho-capitalist revolution, that that really wasn't the intention. But here's the thing. We've run the experiment. And this, this last gasp uh, of that 19th century creed we've discovered uh, is totally self destructive. That those two things of being radical in economics and socially conservative don't go hand in hand. Because what you do is you, you end up maximizing market forces which are disruptive, so globalization, deregulation of the banks, and you also encourage in people an aspirational quality, uh, an individualism, which works against those things that are supposed to be important to traditional conservatives like family and community. And you only have to look at the, the nature of culture today, uh, after 20 or 30 years of Thatcherism and Blairism, to see that the capitalist revolution that she unleashed has eroded those very things that conservatives are supposed to be fond of. Now, so many conservatives have interviewed me in the course of writing this book, and they say to me, is Boris Johnson really a mm. conservative? It's a question that comes up time and time again. They think he's not because he's not a Thatcherite. My answer is, no, he is a Conservative. It's Maggie who wasn't. She intended to be, but the effect of her policies were not. Whereas what Boris is doing is actually returning to a sort of Disraelian position um, of saying we need a little bit of state intervention to protect the things that matter more to us
0: than making money. On that question, I want to ask you about the role that Brexit played in this, because one thing that you've argued is that Brexit in some ways is the end of, or the death knell, of the Thatcherite era. Everything that's come since 1979 and since 1997, which has been this emphasis upon the importance of market relations, the importance of the individual only becomes important, really, in vis-a-vis his or her relationship with the market and what they do in, in that realm. All of that we've lived through over the past few decades. And then along comes Brexit, which is wildly misunderstood by sections of the chattering classes as a statement of racism, a statement of xenophobia, or nostalgia for empire. And as you've said earlier, it's not as if British people are running around being nostalgic for controlling the world. But you argue that, convincingly, I think, that Brexit actually was almost like a stop sign to some of those trends of the past 30 or 40 years. And it was people trying to recover a sense of community and solidarity, and most expressly, a sense of the coherent nation state against those kind of post-border globalizing forces and individualizing forces. So how important do you think Brexit has been in nipping in the bud some of those problematic trends in the Conservative Party from the 70s and the 80s, and also perhaps in giving Boris Johnson the energy to be the kind of conservative that you you argue that he is? If the two trends since the 70s are social liberalism and economic
1: liberalism, individualism married to markets, then Brexit within the Tory party has knocked on the nose those two wings. So if you take the social liberals as the sort of Cameroon people, well, Brexit's popped them on the nose because they were against Brexit. And they think wrongly, but they think Brexit is nostalgia and reaction and all that sort of thing. So institutionally, the loss to Brexit just broke them. And so they will come back, but they cannot come back the way they came before. They have to reconcile themselves to whatever it is they think Brexit is. But as for the economic liberals, here we have a second paradox. If the first paradox is that Maggie actually revolutionized society in a way she didn't expect, the second paradox is that the economic liberals like Maggie supported Euroscepticism, mm. uh, because they thought Europe, socialist. So let's get out of Europe so that we can go away and be this free market capitalism. We, we can be Singapore on the Thames, which is the, the phrase uh, that's so, so often associated with that. But the second irony or paradox is that actually, uh, Brexit's done the complete opposite. Because Brexit has revived the discourse of national community, key being community. It has shifted political power away from the South and aspirational post-industrial constituencies uh, like Essex. And it has moved it instead to northern Labour towns. Um, And thirdly, Brexit (laughs) plus the coronavirus, it hasn't caused damage. It's caused disruption. It's caused disruption. And the consequence is you have to grow the state in order to make up for that disruption, or else to push things in a whole new direction. So all of that comes together in the red wall project of now we have to actually redistribute money, spend money on the northern seats in order to satisfy this whole new national community constituency that's emerged. So that's the that's the second grand paradox of conservatism of the last 40 years, is that the very the very thing that Eurosceptics hoped for to abandon Europe in order to create a free market country, I think they're going to get the complete opposite.
0: Um, We're we're going to move quite dramatically to the left on economics. One of my favourite things about Brexit is that it has disproved so many prejudices and theories that are held onto by sections of the political class. I think firstly, the Cameroon idea and, and, and the left idea that it was just xenophobic nostalgia and um, hatefulness is is obviously completely wrong, but as you say, the idea amongst some Tory free marketeers that this was a stab by the British people to create Singapore on the Thames, to recover that Thatcherite project, in my mind, that's almost as a larger fantasy than the one about Brexit being a xenophobic vote, because. There are so many parts of the red wall sections of the country in particular where the vote was very clearly an attempt to reestablish broken down elements of solidarity, to reestablish the idea that the Government has some responsibility to communities, especially left behind communities, and the idea that there ought to be investment, there ought to be control over that investment and control over national destiny. So I think the way in which Brexit shattered the illusions of the Singapore and the Thames Brigade, or or ought to have shattered those illusions, is actually a very positive thing. I should say in their
1: defence, they did have a cultural perspective, which they were right on, which was that democracy mattered to everyone in Britain or or vast swathes of it, including the working class. Uh, So they, they were correct about that. They were correct about the sovereignty argument. But part of the problem they had was that because they were running against the entire establishment, The narrative in the referendum was that a vote to leave was economic Mm self-harm. Whether that's accurate or not, we, we have yet to see. I don't think it will be in the long run, but in the short term, you'd take a hit for leaving the EU. So in other words, the people who really based their politics upon making people richer for the last 40 years by cutting their taxes and growing the economy, overnight found themselves on the same side as those who said growth doesn't matter. And they found themselves against the establishment which said, you need to stay in the EU in order to remain wealthy. So, so in other words, I think they've accidentally found themselves in that position. And I have sympathy with them. And, and they're not wrong on everything. But they, they need to recognize now that the economic argument has changed because of their victory.
0: Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. Well, that brings me on to the uh, the next question I wanted to ask you, actually, which is, which is a difficult, tangled question, but the question of whether the connection between Boris Johnson's government and the red wall sections of the country, whether that contains within it tensions of their own. And so at the moment, there seems to be a coming together of a government that is keen to recover conservative values, to do something in defence of tradition, to follow through on the vote for Brexit, of course, get Brexit done. There's a coming together of that government and vast ways of the public who want brexit done who want us to recover those sovereign values to become a more independent nation to be able to pursue the good of the community without having to listen to the uh, uh, the demands of the globalist elites so there is a there is a conne- there is a very clear connection between those two sections of society but are there also tensions between them that could eventually come to the surface and one thing i'm thinking in particular is is the electorate Actually, more radical than the government because voting to disestablish the 40 year connection between Britain and the European Union is a fairly radical thing to do. Uh, Most government ministers over the past five years have been keen in some way to rein it in, to water it down, to come up with a deal that is a little bit Brexit, but not entirely Brexit. So, to what extent do you think there are tensions between the aspirations of the electorate for genuine sovereignty, genuine solidarity, genuine investment in communities and their futures, and a government which seems to share those outlooks, but at some point might come unstuck by just how radical the demands of voters are. We shall see. It (laughs) it depends in part on
1: where we wind up economically and socially post-COVID. So it, it might just be that all that radicalism becomes diverted or deformed in some way. Uh, it, it feels as though, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been talking about the growth of the state largely as a good thing. I think there are some very good things about that. But actually, we've also learned with the lockdown that there is a consequence of civil liberties. We're learning with the environment that the government's pretty much pushing ahead with forcing an economic revolution on the country, which I, I personally support, but it's going to cost those people in those constituencies a lot of money. So it could just be that politics will be so different in a few years' time. What I would say is it's interesting to look at the people who got elected from those seats, their character, and what they're bringing to Parliament. And there is definitely a rebellious dimension to them. A very radical dimension, uh, a very patriotic, pro democracy one. And uh, there's also a little bit of a, a lingering Thatcherism as well, in, all, in a surprising way. I think some of those victories in Red Wall seats, some of, them, some of those seats did actually vote for, for Thatcher. Uh, in some areas, you've got people who just needed to forget that their family had always voted Labour. And you've also got a demographic in, in those seats, which are probably richer than we realise. Uh, there's a bit of a prejudice down south in, in assuming that everyone uh, in the north is in an ex-coal seat yeah. and no one's worked since 1983. That's a rubbish. You've got a lot of people sitting on, on property and, and wealth. And places like Sedgefield, Tony Blair's old seat, are just quite middle class now. So I... I'm not weaseling out of it. I, I, I just think things are moving so fast that I don't know where those radical passions are going to end up or what the issues are going to be. Well, I do think that the government's majority is precarious, more precarious than it realises. Well, maybe they do know that because they, they're actually taking some surprisingly strong stands on things like immigration. But I, I think British politics is in a state of flux now and if i If I were entering it, and I was cynical and I had no ideology or principles, I would join Labour, not the Conservatives, because there is a broken, empty husk of a party that you could put <laughs> anything with and if your If your message is sufficiently radical, anti
0: Westminster and clever enough, I think you could take this country in any direction you wanted to go. Okay, so let's move on to the question of wokeness now even though I use the word wokeness all the time in my writing and in my speaking, it's not a word I particularly feel much attachment to, but it is one of those words that's come to define a certain class of people in society who push the hyper-racial politics of identity, cancel culture, these new ideologies, which most people I would wager considered to be an imposition and alien to the British way of life. So the woke elites, I guess, for want of a better phrase, let's talk about those and the role that they play in society. And one thing I I wanted to ask you for your views on is the question of what has more purchase in the opinion forming sections of society. So the sections of society in terms of Who is doing the educating of the next generation? Who is doing the creation of new ideologies, the creation of new ways of thinking? Isn't it the case that even though the Red Wall electorate and the Brexiteer electorate are victorious at the ballot box and the Conservatives have been obviously staggeringly uh, victorious at the ballot box, there is still an incredibly... Undue influence coming from that section of society, from the woke elites, from what we used to call the politically correct set. So how do you, do you agree with that? And how would you explain, if so, how would you explain that imbalance between the, what ought to be the overarching power of the voters say so, but what often seems to be the cultural influence of this section of society? Oh, I, to deal with that question first, I think it's partly, as we
1: discussed earlier, the loss of nerve within the institutions or the institutions having been captured. And I, I, I keep coming back to, I think, traditions are strong, but institutions are weak. Mm. Um, and we've, so it's partly that. It's partly the decline of meritocracy, or perhaps it's not the right word, social mobility in Britain with the consequence that those two parts of the electorate, a little like the Democrats versus the Republicans in the United States, are just not marrying, working alongside each other, going to the same schools and sharing ideas and developing together. I mean, if you, if you just think to your own family, if I think back to my family and its social transformation in the 60s and 70s, pre-Thatcher, because thanks to things like apprenticeships, the incredible way in which this, this country was sort of shaken up and, and, as, and, and, as, and that produces a consequence uh, a politics and an economy which is took down, but I think was actually pretty remarkable. I think the post-war miracle is the real story of, I think is Britain's real high point, not the empire before it. So the, the, the end of that social mobility makes it possible for institutions to be captured, remain captured, and it just becomes impossible to change them. The interesting question then is, is this turning into a generational war? And how do uh, those who are against the woke stuff push back against it? And there's, there's really two schools of thought One uh, is the view that the young are now just lost, that everyone under 40 has just been exposed to so much teaching and so much TikTok that they've just now been transformed as a generation. And the second view, which I would normally uh, lean towards is, look, it is a generational thing. Uh, People do change over time. And those people have lived through a specific socioeconomic circumstance, which older people are partly responsible for. Uh, that if you don't fix, yes, they will continue to go down that road, but don't act like it's just teachers brainwashing people and young people being idiots. Things like the inability to get on the property ladder, doing uh, jobs which are non-jobs, uh, doing, studying for degrees that get you nowhere. Uh, there, there are parts of economy and society which are just broken. Um, and so I, I don't think it's like just a question of trying to persuade those people against woke. I think it's also about trying to understand, this is where we get a bit Marxist here, why it is that the culture reflects the economic conditions, mm. and the structures that are currently in play right now. So I go back to, we mentioned earlier, universities. Jonathan Haidt wrote The Coddling of America, uh, which is all about uh, universities and young people. And he comes up with this ex- brilliant, compelling list of all the things that are going on at universities that are spoiling them and turning them into woke boot camps. In an entire book, he devotes one page the cost of university. And I just think that that's the right in a nutshell. Mm. Brilliant at analyzing culture, completely blind to the, the consequences of economics and socioeconomic structures. So I would say that one, aside from beating woke on the ideas, I think you've also got to change the socioeconomic conditions that push people towards woke
0: mm. because it's partly a symptom of those failures. That's a very interesting argument there. And One thing that concerns me is, I I mean, I completely agree that there is this problem for millennials, I guess, Generation Z now, I I lose track of who's who, but for younger people, there are clear socioeconomic problems. There's the gig economy, there is the extraordinary expensive university, which growing numbers of people attend. Uh, There is the property issue as well my issue is that when that's when that becomes to be manifested as a generational conflict rather than as a, a a conflict that emerges from the current organization of society that's where i have an issue so for example one of the arguments that is often made by that generation or or people who embrace generational politics is that well the baby boomers are the luckiest generation in history and every baby boomer i know was incredibly unlucky, they grew up in poverty, they lived in incredibly dilapidated conditions um, and that was the situation for a large number of that uh, of the boomer generation so I have an issue when things become generationalized so much that you you start to hear these myths about the baby boomers and this embrace of a victimology by millennials and Generation Z, which kind of gets us nowhere in terms of the things you're talking about, which is what are the causes of these socioeconomic conditions and how do they give rise to this woke ideology?
1: I I agree with that. Of course, one thing that was different about the baby boomers, which was better, not materially, but psychologically, was there was a sense of progress, mm-hmm. not just in individual life, but in social life as well. You're talking there about a generation that went to the moon, right? that, that kind of technological <laughs> advance, or the ending of the Cold War, or the splitting of the atom, that, that kind of technological and social advance is very different to, oh, my phone's even smaller now and it does more things, <laughs> right? So, so you've, got, you've got that. But also just things in my family, like getting an indoor loo. Yeah, These really are transformative, whereas latest iteration of iPhone is not transformative in, in the same way. So I, I'm assuming you can say, oh, poor kids today. Uh, they're, they're, they're already luxurious and they've got nowhere else to go. Well, that's true. But there is a slight feeling of dead-endedness yeah. about culture now, um, which is really – just think about how crap so much of TV and cinema is. Whereas if you were a baby boomer, you got to watch The Godfather for the first time. <laughs> whereas venom
0: too just doesn't compete <laughs> absolutely absolutely okay uh tim we're running out of time so i've got one more question i want to ask you and this is a ridiculous question to end on because it's far too large but let's see what we can do one of the things you talk about at length in the book and in other uh, other places where you've written as well is the aggressive individualism of the 21st century and in fact the late 20th century and the uh problematic role that has played in terms of tearing down some of those old ideas of social solidarity, community solidarity, the importance of connection and all those things. And one question I wanted to put to you is, is it the case that there is necessarily a contradiction between individualism and social solidarity? Or is the problem the form that individualism currently takes? So for example, I could easily envisage a society in which If there were strong institutions of solidarity, for example, the church, trade unions, working men's clubs, all those old institutions of solidarity that brought people together, you could easily see a situation in which, in those circumstances, individualism would be a positive thing, because stronger individuals would be more likely to want to connect with their society, connect with their community, make an impact on their community. Isn't the problem Right now, not necessarily individualism, but the existence of, I guess, individuation as a compensation for the lack of any form of social connection or any form of social solidarity. So, shouldn't we argue for not only the re-establishment of social forms of connection, which I am very much in favour of, but also? For a genuine sense of individualism, which is confident, engaged, socially minded, liberal minded, rather than narcissistic and obsessed with one's identity.
1: Yes, (laughs) I'm against individualism as a social phenomenon, which is the self-absorbed, psychoanalyzed, atomized individual, which is actually held up as a good in our society, is actually held up as a virtue. Um, I'm against that. I'm pro-individual. And I believe that the individual can flourish best when society and the collective is strong. When you have, for instance, a generous welfare state that means if you are unemployed, you don't fear to starve. Well, the individual is strong. So you have a collective good, a social good, which the which benefits the individual. So I, I don't I don't see those two things as being intention. On the contrary, almost all traditions offer in some way the hope of enriching the individual. But as part of a contract, that's where the morality is different from the contemporary world, where we simply measure things in my degree of freedom from. How liberated am I either from things or to do things? Whereas what a traditional society does is that that individual sense of freedom is relational to how much they're helping others, how much society is flourishing, to the role they are playing. Um, So I I just think that the stronger the collective is, the stronger the individual will be as well. Now, of course, just to add one more thing into the mix, in the past, many social movements have fought for individual freedom. Again, that is where the two things go hand in glove. So if you take something like gay rights, it should never be misunderstood as an individualistic movement. Even though the goal is the individual's sexual freedom, that goal is achieved through collective organization and through the recognition of someone not being alone. And of having shared experience. So you can see in the past that the way in which individuals have advanced is through social organization, and also through the maintenance or the development of traditions, because gay rights has developed its own traditions. It both, it both fed upon historical traditions of gay identity, and it then built a whole new tradition for itself in the form of gay rights, uh, creating for itself its own social knowledge, its own language, et cetera, et cetera. So for the individual to be healthy and happy and to advance, there has to be community. And that is where I think, that's why I'm making an argument for tradition as something which benefits us, which has utility. It can help us so much much of what we want to do and want to be in the modern society. We're more likely to accomplish by being a bit more traditional in the way we go about things. Tim Stanley, thank you very much. Thank you.